Hey y'all, welcome back to A Higher Way with Tay. I am Taylor Taylor, and in today's episode, the second to last episode of season two of the podcast, I am interviewing psychedelic guide and policy advocate, James Eshelman. While working in finance in 2017, James was grappling with severe depression, alcohol abuse, and an overall lack of purpose in his life. One day he stood up from his desk and quit his career on the spot. And four days later, he participated in his first ayahuasca ceremony. Since that day, James has assisted in over 100 ayahuasca ceremonies and served more than 1,500 people. He has since established his own practice as a psychedelic guide, working with over 200 individuals in one-on-one psilocybin ceremonies since 2019. James serves on the Colorado Natural Medicine Advisory Board's various subcommittees, which contributes to the establishment of the nation's second legal psychedelic therapy licensure model. In today's episode, we explore the profound impact of psilocybin on spiritual well-being and personal transformation. And James shares strategies and insights on how individuals, but most especially men, can live in alignment with their unique gifts and find their ultimate purpose in the world. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I love y'all. James, you are a psychedelic guide, a transformational coach, a public speaker, and a psychedelic policy advocate. You are the founder and facilitator of Center of All Directions, which offers men's groups, coaching, and psychedelic guiding. It is described as an expansive and open-hearted container for evolving beyond what you ever thought possible. I am honored to be having this conversation with you today, and I want to thank you for being my guest and for being willing to have an open discussion with me about these really meaningful topics today. Thank you so much, Taylor. I'm really grateful to be here. Well, I would love to start out with, you know, hearing a little bit about your background. And I know the road that led you to living the life you do today likely did not come without its fair share of deep struggles. And, you know, I think most people don't end up doing the kind of work you do unless they have, you know, slayed some dragons of their own, so to speak. And I just have to say, you know, my favorite interviews are always with the people who are, you know, willing and unafraid to share with vulnerability and openness about their stories, you know, the the dark, the messy, the raw, the real shit. So I've also found it's like, that's what my listeners really appreciate too. So, you know, thank you just out the gate for being willing to be so open with your story on here with me today. Yeah, of course. Um, the darkness, the, you know, the challenges, the dragons and the vulnerability, that's, that's the realm that I, I myself love to play. And, um, so, uh, it feels, it feels good to, to get to, you know, be here and, and talk a little bit about about what I do in the world and um, a bit about my my story as well. Yeah. And, you know, the quote that I took directly from your website was, the world needs people to slash who own their shit. And I, I'm going to have to like write that down and post it on my fridge or something because I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I, I love that. I love that as a, a mantra and a value and just a belief for life because I agree with you on that. I think that's so true. So here's to that. Here's to people owning their shit. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. It's a fertile ground, you know, to, to, um, to take extreme ownership over your life and, and to embrace 
you know, radical acceptance of, of who you are and your place in the world and, and the things that you bring to it, both good and bad, because we have both and, um, or shadow and light, um, more so. Uh, and, uh, and we find gifts and meaning in all of it. And, and oftentimes, uh, the shit is where the, you know, where the flowers grow. So true. It is fertile soil. It is fertile ground. And I think your story really proves that. So I'd love to hear, you know, how you sh- turn your shit into flowers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, my natural disposition as a kid um, was very curious and sensitive. Uh, I had just an overwhelming amount of uh, appreciation and, and um a desire for insight into the way that things worked and it always you know started off just sort of in um you know simple questions uh about about you know the the things that i saw whether it was the way that a plane could fly in the sky or um the way that markers could color on paper uh really even like that granularly as a kid i just remember having some profound thoughts about that and um and but at the same time i also felt this deep sense of um yearning for something uh meaningful um and, and perhaps that's that's where the curiosity sort of stemmed from was finding uh finding the significance in the world around me um and i had this memory uh perhaps one of my earliest memories as a kid i was i was 6 years old it was just after my my grandfather had passed away um on my on my mom's side and uh, i was laying on the couch and she was kind of just gently um stroking my head as as i could feel what death was i could feel what it meant for eternity to go on forever and it was at once both incredibly expansive and and beautiful and also to a six-year-old kid incredibly terrifying but what what touched me in that moment was was the love that my mother was giving me and um and that was just such a such a big and and has been a big memory that i've carried with me throughout my life. And, um, and then, you know, through childhood and adolescence, you begin to uh, just become a part of the world around you and the culture and um, the traditions and the expectations. And, And I grew up in a small town in Illinois, and I went to the same high school that my dad did and his father and his father before him. So there was a big, rich history of lineage and expectation. And and so my expectation, the expectation that I felt was that I needed to be an athlete and I needed to be a leader and I needed, um, I needed to get into business and I needed to get into finance of some sort and make a, a lot of money. And, and so I followed that track through, um, through, through high school, you know, and, and into college and eventually ended up getting a, a finance degree, um, that, uh, at the university of Tampa. And 
and there's there's so much to to why that space felt important to me um but as i kind of reflect back on my life there was always just this deep yearning and desire for an application uh of what i felt inside was a gift in the way that i saw the world and and so i went all in on on finance and it ended up being a road that that led me in a completely opposite direction yeah completely opposite without a doubt <laughs> yeah you know i've heard you share before on another podcast another you know when you were growing up and about your parents divorce and i would love to hear you reflect on that specifically about kind of how it because i think it's an important part of your story you know in terms of understanding sort of your own emotions and then maybe that also being a time where you maybe for the first time we're aware of um the intricacies of your mom's emotions and um the the difference between the dynamic of your mom and dad can you can you touch on that a little bit about why that was so impactful for you as a kid when they separated yeah absolutely i you know as a coming back to this this sensitivity that i carried inside my system um I I always felt like I I needed to to be somebody uh for the people in my life. Um there was a a way in which I could feel the pain of withdrawal whenever I did something that um withdraw from a parent or a loved one whenever I I did something that that maybe they didn't approve of. And um and so I I really built my my understanding of the world around um around what was kind of expected of me and um and you know for for a kid who's going through divorce and i went through my parents divorce at about 13 14 years old which is you know one of those ages where you're learning how to differentiate yourself from the world and individuate you know you're really creating an, a sense of identity and um you're forming more complex relationships with people and um for uh, a 13 year old boy you're really starting to become you know or beginning the process of becoming your own man um and you know my my parents were were both such loving people growing up um there was always a profound amount of love in our in our household um and and my mother was somebody who I, you know, going back to that story when I was six years old, I always really connected with her emotionally and felt and felt um, in a lot of ways uh, safe to to express my sensitivity and and my emotional capacity and my sensitivity to her. Um, my dad, on the other hand, that that relationship was um, there was a bit more a bit more tension there. Uh, we, you know, coming back to these expectations, I felt the weight of his expectations and the weight of the expectations from my paternal lineage to sort of follow in his footsteps. And, um, and, and going through that individuation process, you begin to sort of shun, you know, the, um, those responsibilities because you, you feel that draw to become your own person. And, and so, um, you know, in in that you know sense of of expectations i sort of lost the capacity for um for acceptance for self acceptance especially 
that I needed to meet those expectations in order to be able to accept myself and um, and and who I am. And and so at that age, I just not having this reservoir of self acceptance and and um, and of course, you know, you're young. Um, as my parents divorced, and I then was kind of elevated to the man of the house within my mother's household, and she was going through, you know, the immer- emotional turmoil of of um, uh, of a separated family and and the stress and struggle of of being a single mom. So I kind of elevated myself into that position of of the paternal figure in the household, and and the way that that showed up is is I began to put other people's needs, uh, especially emotional needs before my own. Um, and, and that was kind of the beginning of the process of, of recognizing, um, uh, the impact of, of self abandonment on, on my growth. But, um, you know, as a, as a kid, you just kind of deal with the world as, as you see it and, and with the tools that you have available to you. Um, and and so that was that was my way of of coping with with the tension um, that I was that I was feeling at that time in my life. Yeah, I think that self abandonment is something that people experience at some point in their life. Usually, you know, I would guess adolescence is probably, if not early childhood, you know, depending on your circumstances. But I think it's a an experience that we all have and we all go through driven by different factors. But it's interesting that in that dynamic, you know, where you felt like you kind of had to put your emotions aside and sort of step up in that role for your mom. What, where did you feel like that? Like, what did it teach you then about what a man needed to be for a woman? And like, is that something that you felt like formed a belief for you that you carried on in terms of just like, you know, your own emotions and the emotions of women. And then the dynamic too, of like how you saw your dad responding emotionally to the divorce versus your mom. Yeah, there was, um, you know, the, I I think what I learned in that, um, dynamic was that the, feminine emotions the the ups and downs the waves um were unsafe in my system um and and that i needed to create an avoidance which is kind of a a pattern that i saw um in in men uh and 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 friends at that age is um of creating space between um, myself and the um, emotional experience of a woman, um, and at the same time being deeply invested in the stability of her emotions, so that I could feel safe, right? And so then is that that's that drawing up out of my experience and the um, the the absence of self or the lack of skill around self regulation within a an environment that felt uh to a degree you know just emotionally unsafe like i couldn't access or feel into what i was experiencing because the environment that i was within uh was there was just a lot of energy that was going on around me yeah absolutely 
And I think it makes a lot of sense. And I would dare I even make a generalization here, but I feel like a lot of men feel unsafe in a situation where women have large emotions, you know, the ups and downs, the intensity, the energy of them. I think it's common um, in our culture that, you know, and it's even like a joke sometimes where it's like men freak out, you know, when women start getting emotional or, or reacting emotionally to a situation. So I can, I can understand in that dynamic, the, the layers too, of like also you needing her to be okay because she was still your parent and and your your mom and you had that connection with her there so it's just an interesting dynamic i think to sort of lay the groundwork too for the future work that you you know obviously ended up doing around all of these um these things so um so thank you for for touching on that and sharing on that and tell me a little bit more about you know you mentioned obviously you you felt the pressure in your lineage and from your family to kind of go into that realm of working in finance and the pressure to be an athlete and sort of follow in the footsteps of, of what your family had done. So tell me a little bit about how that worked and then eventually didn't work for you. So when, uh, yeah, I, I think the, all these processes, you know, you're, you're formed by your environment and, and you look around and you see the patterns of behavior and you're perceiving these patterns of behavior from, uh, from your perspective. And, and I think as a kid, you know, your, your mission is, is sort of to create safety and, and belonging in your life. And, and so to find these, these threads of, of safety and belonging in my family dynamic, it was, yeah, it was, it was following in, you know, the athletic footsteps. And, and I remember that too, there was like a lot of comparison, um, in, in my family, um, between my dad and I, um, in our dispositions and in the things that we were interested in and, um, our, um, you know, our, our strengths and in sports. And, and so it, it felt like, you know, there's this, there's this way in which in, in the masculine, um, world, right. We, we have kind of these, these archetypal representations of, of the King and, and the Prince. And, and when you're a kid, you look to your father and your father's, you know, he, he runs the kingdom. He's the sovereign. He, he directs his, uh, you know, his, his, his kingdom as he sees fit. And it's the responsibility of, of the prince to sort of bend the knee um, and and serve the king, and then you know at some point in in the archetypal initiation of of masculinity, um, there's there needs to be a, a separation of um, b- from the prince and and the kingdom that he's been serving, so that the prince can begin to define what it's like for for him to sort of rule his own kingdom and and um and that generally is supposed to happen in some ways at at least begin around 13 14 years old so just kind of reflecting back at at how this you know divorce sort of unfolded um in my life um uh it was it was at that time where i realized that like my my kingdom was around sort of serving others and serving the emotional needs of others and um and and so then you know throughout you know the the rest of the next really eight years um what i felt was uh 
you know required of me was was to uh get into finance and and um and make a lot of money and you know create my quote unquote kingdom in in that way but um into quickly into my professional life i realized that that the oppositional forces that i was coming upon um in in my work in finance was was overwhelming it was as though i would put more and more energy and effort into the things that i was trying to do whether it was to get a job in venture capital or get a job in a startup or you know um sort of make a name for myself uh i i just felt like the boulder was getting bigger as i was pushing it uphill um which led to essentially a really a breaking down of of that identity that occurred over the course of you know about about 3 or 4 years and what did that look like for you well it was it was like just a bunch of depression and anxiety um i was living and working in san francisco uh after college and um was just felt like this corporate drone you know i would get on the bus in san francisco ride the streets of san francisco go up to the 32nd floor overlooking the ferry building and i could feel myself in this beautiful landscape of of san francisco and the energy was so vibrant but deep down inside i felt i felt dead um i felt empty and and that led to a lot of alcoholism and self-destructive behaviors and um and i was overweight and um and i had no friends or social community i remember the really the only the only thing at that particular point in my life that was in any way shape or form uh fulfilling was the were the walks that i would go on through the streets of san francisco um just to sort of clear my mind and and in hindsight you know it's easy to identify that as like my first introduction to meditation um a way in which i could sort of just feel the earth meeting my feet as um as i walked and and to come into contact with with that relationship even was was so um it, it was so substantial to me um and and slowly i started to feel this churning inside of me and i was called to move to denver um about 2 years 2 or 3 years into my professional life and um when i moved here i ended up meeting a uh uh my teacher my 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 teacher who would go on to help me you know learn the the space of of psychedelics um and and so it was this this going deep into the darkness into the depths of pain and suffering and sorrow and grief that i eventually realized that the identity that i was holding on to was no longer worth it and it gave me just this little glimmer of light that i was able to follow because i could drop that identity it was no longer bringing me anything of substance yeah i can imagine that and i feel like just imagining the scenario you were describing and this sort of like walking meditation which i love that by the way i feel like it is a meditation and it's a beautiful way i think too for people who can't really sit 
and be still um, and try to do the traditional meditation that way. Um, walking with presence of mind and breath and the quiet, also the noise of the world around you, but just being in that internal place while you walk, it is a beautiful meditation. I I want to just mention, you know, I live here and on the coast in South Carolina and I like to go to the beach and look look for shark's teeth. And I have always felt like as I'm walking the beach and, and sort of like scanning the sand for shark's teeth, it, that's become a walking meditation for me uh, un, unintentionally, you know, because it's that it's the movement, it's the breath, it's the sort of focus, but the not not focus um, with the mind. And it brings so much peace. Um and and it's a it's a beautiful way to meditate. So I imagine you, you know, kind of like strolling the streets of San Francisco and being in that place. And then when you talk about going to Denver and meeting your teacher, you know, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So I feel like that was by no accident, you know, that that that, that meeting happened. And how soon around then or after then did you make the decision to sort of leave that world of you know, you were this self-proclaimed finance bro. And, um, you know, I know you had a pretty abrupt decision of of literally standing up one day and, and walking away from that. So tell me a little bit about, you know, that day. Yeah, you know, this was, yeah, it was January 31st, 2017. Um, and this was about, I was about six months into my job um, in finance here in Denver. And uh, I've been slowly feeling this, just uh, you know, this this disconnect from myself. And and that day, as I was just sitting at my desk, um, I had this revelatory sort of like as though there was like a spring underneath my seat, and as though I was driven by like I sort of stepped back out of my body and into an observer space, and I just witnessed myself walk into my manager's office and i was totally expecting to give two weeks notice and and my manager looks at me and she goes okay if that's what you want to do uh security will escort you out of the building um go collect your things and uh and it was like that moment was like probably the biggest blessing just just to get that immediate closure and be like, okay, this is totally the right decision. Like, I feel like I am being, you know, pushed out this door by something far beyond what I can comprehend. Um, and it was like a weight was lifted off of my shoulders, but another weight was put on of, well, what am I going to do next? Like, what is the thing that, um, I am being drawn to do? And it wasn't this like heavy, kind of oppressive weight but it was this like heart you know forward kind of like i'm no longer going to be pushed um from or or, or maybe pulled forward but i'm going to be like pushed from behind by something bigger than myself um and so it just created enough openness for me to be receptive to what life wanted me to do next and what life wanted you to do next, I think within a few days, if I'm not mistaken, was your first ayahuasca ceremony. Is that right? Yeah. So in, I think it was four days later, actually, I sat my first ayahuasca ceremony and 
And that whole process, you know, getting into the medicine work, it was, it was so much for, you know, my own healing, especially in those early days. It, it was, it was so that I could process what I hadn't processed over the course of the previous 25 years of my life. Um, and so I sat in my first ceremony four days later, and then I sat in two additional ceremonies that month. And I just began this really deep regimented um, relationship with ayahuasca where I have an, um, an experience and, and drop deep into an integrative process. And every layer that I kind of worked through, I, I felt more connected to something much, much bigger than myself. And, um, and it, it was oftentimes just really driven by the love that I began to feel um, in myself, for myself, for um, the world around me and, uh, and, 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 and sort of beginning to close the distance of separation that I felt from myself and from, from others. Yeah. I, I agree with you that with ayahuasca specifically, I think that's one of the many beautiful benefits is the, the, the closing of that gap, um, between, us as individuals and the collective and humanity. Um, I know that's been my experience too. It's It's been a beautiful blessing to, to be able to understand on my own path and in my own life, um, that new perspective that I don't think I would have had without my experiences with that medicine. And I'm curious, you know, two things. One, how long you worked exclusively with ayahuasca in the beginning um, before you moved on to some other, you know, um, other medicines. And then also, do you feel like ayahuasca was instrumental in sort of giving you some guidance as to the next steps? Because I imagine, you know, walking out of that job and that career, there had to have been this part of you that was like, you know, how am I going to pay bills and what do I do next? So I wonder, did you get any insight from the medicine? Um, and, and was that something you were looking for that, that helped you sort of figure out the next steps? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I, you know, what I found in, in the way that this, that, that medicine really showed up for me is, um, I, I would often, I remember, especially in the early days, I would go in there with, you know, these, these kind of intentions around like, what do I need to do here? And what do I need to do there? And, you know, what can I do to, um, to like create a living for myself? Or what can I do to, you know, help with this relationship? And, um, and, and every time that I would, I would set sort of that kind of expectation, or, or rather intention, I would just have this really deep, you know, spiritual experience of, of connecting, um, uh, to, to the greater like oneness, you know, of life, right. The, the collective we, if you will. And so I, I never got this, you know, like people can t talk about their psychedelic experiences and they have these great magnificent visuals as though like, the story of their life is sort of unfolding and, and they're kind of seeing, you know, maybe where they went wrong in life or, or what they need to do next in life. And it's, you know, depicted in, in sort of a storyboard format. I, I never had that, um, which is, you know, kind of a fascinating, um, you know, obviously very personal experience, but, uh, 
instead what it did for me is is it just dropped me into a, a a center in myself that i then could take out into the world and begin to see how the world had uh affected me or begin to see like and observe the ways in which I was different in the world. And then through that, I began paying attention to, you know, my reality on a deeper, more fundamental level and just began following the threads that sort of brought me to life. And so I went through a period of about two years where I was sitting with that medicine, you know, for, for my own healing, where I, I really didn't feel like, you know, it was going to manifest into anything substantial or, or significant in terms of sort of career or purpose or calling even. Um, but I was invited by the facilitator to begin, you know, apprenticing under him essentially. And I found that it, it was when I moved from my own personal work into a place of service towards the community that we were serving um, that I really fundamentally began to recognize like that I had a gift to give um, that could help people help guide people um, both in a psychedelic capacity and otherwise just a, an understanding a fundamental understanding about about the way in which life work uh, life life works right and, and 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 the deeper more meaningful questions that are provocative and um, and bring about you know clear insight uh, so it was from that, through that apprenticeship that I began to gain the skills of, of what it takes to facilitate a, a mystical experience and, um, and, and to, to hold space is, you know, I mean, we talk about hold, holding space we talk about containers and like, those are big catchphrases right now. Um, but there's, there's such a depth to which you can really draw down your capacity to, to hold space and hold an unconditionally loving container. And, um, and I think so much of, of what I did within the apprenticeship role that I was, um, that I was placed under was, was understanding the complexities of, of what it is to, to facilitate that. I would lean over to my teacher, you know, in the middle of a ceremony and just kind of ask him, you know, what are you tracking right now? What are you paying attention to? And through that began to cultivate my own gift. Um, and it was just a sort of a, you know, a step-by-step -step process of, of beginning to recognize that I could take more and more responsibility on in this space. So then I began, you know, the next step for me was to um, begin facilitating really one-on-one -on -one journeys uh, with psilocybin. And, and at each step, there was a, a lot of resistance for me to do so, but it was a resistance of, of really myself and my own limitations around what I thought I was capable of doing. That's so interesting because, you know, I want to ask you, like, in your opinion, somebody who, like, when you were apprenticing or even just first coming to the medicine as a student, right, um, what what qualities do you think, because as you know, you've been doing this a while, like, sometimes people go and they they partake in ceremony and they, you know, sit with different medicines and then instantly they're like, I'm meant to be a shaman, you know, I'm meant to, this is, I'm supposed to like serve medicine. So I want to know in your opinion, what constitutes somebody who's truly ready to venture from 
you know, I think we're obviously always a student on the path, but but somebody who's ready to sort of cross over into the much larger role, the more responsible, you know, the responsibility that is is required both for, like you said, holding space, um, understanding of the the medicine and the culture and so many intricacies around it. But, you know, what's the difference there? Like what what when is somebody ready for that? And 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 does it have to do with like how how much medicine you've drank or how much trauma you've processed or like what what makes somebody ready to step into that role because not everybody is cut out for it yeah yeah you know the the passage of prop 122 here in the state of colorado the decriminalization legalization of psychedelics has certainly brought this conversation to the forefront and um you know we've been uh i've been working with the state to to could have these these very conversations of what does it take for somebody to be ready um to to do this work and uh and and it's a it's a really important conversation um because you know kind of as you said like i there are stories of people who you know sit with this medicine sit with any medicine once and they're like okay i'm definitely called to serve this serve this medicine to somebody and and to me, I just like shudder when I hear that, you know, um, I, I sat in a large amount of, of ayahuasca ceremonies and, and have seen, you know, 1500 to 2000 people come through those ceremonies. I've worked with hundreds of people in one-on-one psilocybin containers, and I'm still very much learning what it takes, you know, to, to, and maybe not what it takes, but, but I'm always deepening into my capacity to facilitate within this space. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, if, if you ask any individual who's facilitating in this space, they're going to have a different answer for you. Um, but, but my answer I think is, is there, there needs to be a devotion, some devotional quality that you're bringing to the work. And, and to me, devotion is, giving love from a like from a bottomless cup towards for in service to somebody else or in service to a higher purpose or in service to a a higher virtue that's like number 1 um number 2 is uh the the capacity to regulate your own nervous system and to have enough self awareness within yourself that you can differentiate you and another right um but also still be intimately connected to the experience that another is having um which is a really fine art to be able to do that and and sometimes people are really born with that skill they might are they might have already been able to develop it but i think that that skill within a psychedelic space is is really honed under what i would say is number three which is experience experience sitting under another facilitator and um being able to uh be mentored by somebody who has carried the medicine who has carried the responsibility of serving the physical emotional spiritual and psychological safety of of people because these are really intense experiences and things can go really wrong and um and, and so to to deny or or to not really come into contact with the weight of that responsibility um 
is setting a facilitator up for a karmic experience in the future that's going to rock their world. And, um, and it's bound to happen. You know, um, you're bound to have as a facilitator, you're bound to have a bad trip, uh, or, or, or facilitate a trip for somebody that is extraordinarily challenging and difficult. Right. And that will test your entire nervous system and test your resolve to remain in devotional love towards that person as they're going through something that is very, very, very intense. Um, so so yeah, I'd say those qualities kind of stand out. I agree with you completely. And I think, you know, number three, especially, at least in my opinion, about having some time and some experience where you're mentored and you, like, you know, in your case, had an apprenticeship, you had a teacher, you studied, you know, you weren't like kind of let loose in the wild to sort of make your own rules of how it was going to go. There was a there was a guidebook, I so to speak, um, to follow and some a lot of learning and studying um, that needed to happen. And I think that's very important. So I, I, I appreciate that you had that experience. And I'm curious, you know, when you talk about your one-on-one psilocybin and then also, you know, your experience with ayahuasca, just the differences obviously between those two medicines, but, you know, what do you feel like you have a medicine? Like what's your medicine? And, and I obviously know both of those have different purposes and um, are two totally different um, medicines, but I'm, I would love to hear you sort of touch on your experience of when one is preferred over the other or needed, or if one is even just more personal to you. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, the medicine, um, you know, it's hard to speak to this um, sort of uh, blanket. And, and I think if I were to say which which medicine I'm I'm personally I have the deepest personal relationship with, um, it would it would probably be a, be ayahuasca. Um, and and um, the reason for that I think is that. Uh, the way in which she guides me and uh, shows me the parts of myself that I need to understand um, or, or need to meet and and integrate, I should say, uh, is is just so. It, it's as though it it drives it straight into the nucleus of of really who I am, and um, and then there's sort of this like you know, ripple effect outward from, from that nucleus. Um, and, and, and psilocybin has, has done that for me at at times too. Uh, but the spirit of ayahuasca, what people will often call grandmother is, um, you know, I, I sort of experience her as, as this very, you know, firm, but like also gentle spirit, you know, she'll, she'll call you out on your bullshit. She'll, um, challenge your notions about yourself, uh, and she'll push you um, to to find truth and to find meaning. And when the experience is, when you're having an experience that's just a bit too difficult, she sort of brings you back from the edge um, and and embraces you with this unconditional love. And it's it's so it's so beautiful in that way. Um, and and I think psilocybin has this quality that 
that works very well with um as, as most psychedelics do but but psilocybin especially in in the way that it manifests the subconscious mind um and and makes those deeper subconscious uh programs uh really tactile and intangible to work with um so in the one-on-one work that i've done um it, it's it's been beautiful because i part of the work that i do is is work with the subconscious programming and these conditioned beliefs and ideas about who we think we are um it's sort of like you know um you know we're on the op- operating table and and psilocybin is is the the scalpula that that cuts through um all of those notions and stories uh that that are directing you know our quality of life um and i think in terms of of capacity within um containers you know ayahuasca i think is best experienced in in a group setting um there's such a communal experience to the way that that medicine shows up it really elicits this incredible connection with self and other and breaks down the veil of separation um that that when done in community the community actually elevates that capacity to experience oneness um and then you know mushrooms have uh their the safety profile of mushrooms is is you know research is showing that that they're just they're a lot more safe than these other psychedelics um and they're a lot more approachable too for for the general public which um i think those two facets are pretty much why we're seeing you know psilocybin being most researched um for uh you know within um uh clinical studies and uh various other research uh angles as well yeah absolutely it's so interesting to hear you sort of share you know the, your perspective and on both of those and the difference as it relates to in just your own experience and it resonates so much with me and when you were talking about you know the metaphor of like the operating table and and the mushroom as sort of like the scalpel i i feel like it's interesting too because what we know what the research shows about neurogenesis and and mushrooms and the effect on neuroplasticity and and truly like when you're talking about those subconscious programming and like the ability to sort of utilize psilocybin more in that way to you know change ingrained behavior patterns and subconscious thought programs it's it's amazing that it has that abil- ability and it it really is almost like a a surgery in a way, um, working with it intentionally in that capacity. So, so I love that it offers that. And then, you know, in my perspective from, from my experience with ayahuasca, you know, I, I feel like it's, you know, we will touch on in a minute here, obviously like your, your men's work and, and some things about, you know, the masculine and the feminine. But one thing for me with, with ayahuasca is it has always shown me, or I guess brought out in me, my feminine so much. And, you know, you talk about this grandmother ayahuasca and sort of like that kind of stern, but loving, um, spirit that she has. And one thing that I feel like she's really shown me or brought out in me is, um, embodying that, the feminine spirit that I have. And even just down to the way that I dress when I go to ceremony, you know, or wearing my hair down and my long dresses and really feeling embodied in that. It's been a beautiful expression for me of something that 
um, I don't know if I would have tapped into in any other way. And it's an interesting byproduct, right, of, of sitting with such a powerful and strong medicine that it makes me feel soft and feminine. But it's true. That's one of the beautiful things that it's done for me. And I'm curious to hear you touch on a little bit, like how, you know, your men's work and your, your coaching sort of became the next step um, on your path and and how that also balances learning and studying and coaching men about understanding about the masculine and feminine, you know, that's in each of us, the balance. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think, you know, this, this invitation into the feminine is um, by these medicines is, is really probably the biggest part of um, really that, that I'm seeing kind of on a, a macro uh, from a macro lens of, of the way in which these medicines, which come from the earth, I mean, they're, they're earth, they're earth substances, right? They're, they're in a way breaking down, um, all the ways in which we are separated from, um, from this living organism that we call home. Um, and, and I, one of the biggest facets I think within, within men, especially is, um, you know, is this, this notion of, of disconnection from, from the feminine, both within and without, um, we sort of grow up in, um, in, in masculine culture to, we learn to sort of disrespect the feminine you know, disrespect nature and disrespect, um, uh, our, our classmates. And, uh, and, and, and there's this sort of extractive capacity that, that this sort of over culture of toxic masculinity teaches us where, um, you know, boys are, are meant to, um, meant to take, uh, and, and take from a place of of emptiness too, which creates this really um, unfortunate cycle of 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 uh, attaining, trying to attain something that will never fill us up, right? Ultimately, can you talk a little bit about you know the the pillars of your men's work and and how that really exists in the capacity of of learning and balancing? and teaching and studying about the masculine and feminine energies that we all have and carry. Mm. Yeah. So one, one thing that I've, I've really witnessed in men is, is that, you know, these plant medicine experiences do open us to, um, to heal, you know, and, and even healing is, is such a sort of this within the context of masculine and feminine energies, healing in its nature is, is sort of predominantly, you know, feminine in a way, um, that to, for men to experience healing, they need to open up to the emotional pain that they've experienced in life. And what I think we see out in the world and, and what I've noticed in, in these plant medicine ceremonies is that, um, that, uh, as we begin to heal this emotional pain and, and begin to connect to, you know, the deeper vulnerabilities that we have below um, all of these big emotions that men tend to experience between, you know, anger and especially rage um, that, that it's, 
really hiding this this vulnerability, this piece about ourselves that we've been trying to protect. Um, but it, it's to to come into contact with that vulnerability and to know how to work with it or or how to be in relationship with it. Um, it it does require a space for men to to be able to to talk about it, you know, to be able to share um, uh, the things that are weighing on their hearts, you know, all the challenges that they're facing. Um, for you know a long time, um, uh, you know, without the container of of a men's work container, what you tend to see is is men leaning on the women in their relationships um for uh for their predominant you know uh emotional support right that's their predominant emotional support system and uh i think you know men's work containers really one are important for men to be able to sit and talk in relationship with other men because we all have a really broad depth of capacity to impact another person with how we share about our experience and what we're going through in our life and how we're choosing to go through it. Um, you know, this is this kind of culture of, of being vulnerable within a group of men or around a group of men. Um, it's just not something that, that men and, and boys really grew up with. It's a technology that in, in a lot of ways, it's becoming more popular now, but but in a lot of ways, for a lot of men, it's a technology that just simply doesn't exist. Um, when I look at you know feminine culture, it's 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 deeply ingrained this sense of um, shared experience and emotional vulnerability, um, and and a deep emotional connection with another. Um, and so, as as men go through psychedelic experiences. And begin to break down these walls of uh, pain and these walls of uh, separation and disconnection. You know, you're uh, what I'm seeing is that men are kind of left in this place of, okay, great, I see this, but now what do I do with this? How do I integrate this? How do I make meaning of this? You know, what does this mean about me if I'm experiencing these things? Because for so long, my identity has been you know, um, that I am this way or I am that way. And now I'm beginning to shift and reform my identity. And I, and I think the best way for, for men to experience sort of a, a shift in identity and, and, a, and a container of vulnerability is, is to do so, um, amongst, amongst group groups of men. Um, because it's, it's within that space that both the masculinity of the individual, um, can really be honored. And then two, the, the space for that feminine, the, the femininity, the expression, the healing to take place in a container where there isn't, you know, um, an overburdened uh, partner on the other side, right? Or an overburdened lover on the other side. You know, you're better able to, uh, to navigate those waters a little bit more seamlessly. And for men to be able to show up in relationship with their women, um, uh, as a sort of more and ever continuously integrated self. Oh, I love that. A continuously integrated self is, I think, the common goal for all of us, you know, men and women. But I love that because I agree with you. Just, 
you know, culturally speaking, you're right that it it, it does seem like, you know, men are sort of <clears throat> limited to, you know, their partner for being the, you know, uh, their emotional support or, you know, and, and I think just of myself, like with my girlfriends and how it's just, it's just what we do. We sit and we talk and share openly. And it's just such, I can't imagine not being able to do that. So it's beautiful that, you know, you can start these processes in these groups where men, at least in the beginning, just get comfortable being vulnerable with each other. Um, you know, being vulnerable by saying, you know, that they need to be heard and witnessed and have space held for them to share their own fears or concerns or worries. But then I think there's something beautiful too about like what I see of groups of brotherhood, you know, that are being built on, on that aspect of femininity too, which is the vulnerability. Um, so I think it's, it's awesome. I love to see more of that coming up and seeing more of these, you know, like, cause it just didn't used to be a thing, men's groups like this. So I think it's a beautiful and important piece to, um, you know, healing a lot of wounds in our inhumanity um, is, is having that container for men. And, and obviously like women, we, my sisters, all of us, we, we have our own work as well, but you know, that has been such an area that's been lacking for men. So I think it's beautiful that that's happening. And I I'd like to hear a little more just about like what it consists, what else you guys do <laughs> in your men's groups. I mean, I, I, I'm curious to know like what, what kind of, you know, do you guys do retreats? Is it, are you doing, you know, um, psychedelic journeys together? Is it just one-on-one -on -one coaching? Like what, what are you doing? What does it look like? I, uh, I do a couple of, uh, I, I utilize a couple of forms. Um, you know, some of my, one of my men's work, my primary offerings is, is what I would call sort of a, a men's group council format that meets, um, regularly. And, that space is it's a, it's a couple of things it's like it's one part council format so getting together sharing about where we're at the challenges that we're facing in our life um the support that we need or even to the things that we're doing really well because that part of us also needs to be honored and respected you know the the part of us that's actually like kicking ass and and doing really well and um and stepping up to the plate and owning our shit um so as as much as it's about like you know vulnerability and pain and the things that are ailing us it's it's also about like celebrating masculinity and and being really supportive of of the threads that are emerging in our life that that are you know really vital and and important to us owning who we are and and feeling powerful in this world um and then we also work with various different themes. Uh, a big one for men is anger and, and rage. Um, and anger and rage are, you know, what men learn early on in life is, is that we kind of were allowed essentially two emotions, happiness and anger. Um, and, and so we have this really complicated relationship with, uh, with anger. That, that oftentimes before we even get to the real vulnerable part of, of uh, that that's below that anger, we jump into that self-protective um, state of anger. And, um, and so to create a container, a, a real container that allows men to express what we could call sacred anger, right? Or uh, righteous anger, like a, a, like a holy anger, um, 
or another way of saying it is anger expressed through love that I love myself so much. I'm going to express this anger in a safe way so that I don't have to carry the burden of this anger or place this anger on the loved ones um, in my life. Uh, so that that's a big thread of, of um, exploration. Um, and then I do some various different retreat work as well. Um, I have a mentor of mine and we do a retreat out in Zion National Park every year in the spring. And it's a week long kind of deep uh, practice container that goes into all these major themes of masculinity, uh, whether it is, um, you know, our, our own self-belonging, our connection to nature, our capacity to cultivate real presence, both for ourselves and for another person, um, our capacity to regulate our nervous system and sort of expand outward, you know, to hold more of who we are um, and, and what we're experiencing in any given moment. Um, and, and that's such a beautiful, uh, it's probably my favorite thing that I have on my calendar every year because the landscape is just, it's so beautiful and the depth of work that occurs there is, is just extraordinary. Well, I, I have to say, I think it's, I was, well, two things. One, I've been lucky enough to visit Zion before and I know how beautiful it is and I can't imagine a better place to go to have that type of experience. But secondly, what you were saying, you know, about the nervous system regulation and then also the loving expression of anger, I just imagine all of us, but yes, definitely men, because of what men are taught in terms of of anger and and how what's allowed in regards to that. I, I feel like um for everybody, you know, uh, the healthy expression of anger it really does help balance the nervous system. You know, we know from a biochemical standpoint that repressing intense emotions or not having an outlet or feeling shame even for having anger, um, it, it, it is creates hormonal disruption in our body. And there is a sacredness to anger. And it's so interesting because I've been, you know, thinking a lot about that topic in my own life and, and, and really shifting from the perspective that I think we have been taught culturally about anger. Um, and it, it serves a purpose, you know, and it's interesting. I heard someone say that, you know, it's almost like when you're sick, you know, and you have a fever and the fever is serving a purpose, you know, um, and, and anger can be like that. Anger can be alchemizing um, something in the body if we allow it to process through and out of our nervous system and out of our physical bodies. And so many people, you know, myself included for a long time, didn't know how to do that. And I know men especially didn't know how to do it appropriately, or I say appropriately loosely, but I think you know what I mean, um, without violence, for example, or, or um, so, so it's, it's really interesting. I think that's a, a topic that I could continue to talk about for a long time, you know, the sacredness of, of rage or the, or the holiness even of anger. And it's a, it's a very interesting concept and I'm glad it's one that you focus on a lot because it's important. You know, I, I think, yeah, and I kind of want to tie in to a piece um, from earlier that we were discussing around, um, you know, the, the way in which men and, and certainly I, in my own experience, um, experience the emotions of, of women um, is, is oftentimes when 
we're in a relationship with with women and and i can certainly say this i i i had a a very powerful relationship that i went through um about a year and a half ago that that really lit me up around around how how much of an invitation a woman's emotional experiences to take us deeper regardless of how it's expressed right that yeah our our capacity within ourselves to feel her is dependent upon our capacity to feel our own experience. And so when we get to that place, especially with women, where we feel ourselves closing down, where we feel ourselves dissociating, feel ourselves disconnecting, or trying to change the emotional experience of our partners, of our women, there is within ourselves the dismissiveness or the closure and turning away from our own emotional experience. But this is the opportunity that I think the feminine provides for us is, is it, it gives us the opportunity to meet ourselves in our greatest depth and in our greatest vitality and life force. That the gift of the feminine is to bring you to life in a way that you've never experienced it before. And the pain that we feel in those moments of intense emotional expression from our partners is the pain of closure from our own felt experience. And it's so fascinating because that pain can be felt as anger or rage, the too muchness, the outward, I can't take this, this is too much, so I'm going to project this out towards you, at you, and put this emotional experience, this tension that I'm feeling onto you. Um, and it's to me, it's heartbreaking, you know, uh, one, to have lived through a relationship like, you know, for myself that, that both broke me open and, you know, showed me how closed off I was to love and what love really is and the way that it shows up. And it's not to say that I think, you know, um, the way in which it's expressed from the feminine from women is always perfect but but there's there's just such a beautiful gift in the way that we can deepen our relationship to to the feminine to see it and approach it with a reverence and openness and a devotion towards not just her but to ourselves and to life in general life itself Gosh, everything you said is just beautiful and so true and so beautifully stated. And I think, you know, gosh, this is a topic that we could really go deep on. And I I do feel like, you know, in the feminine too, that when there is the balance where, you know, obviously it's just speaking for myself, but I think for a lot of women, you know, wanting coming to the relationship or coming to a hard conversation, for example, or a conflict with the openness and then being met with, you know, the being closed off on the other side or the resistance, or like you said, this is too much for me. I can't handle this, like the closing down and walking away. That's so deeply painful. And, you know, there becomes, you know, a, a side effect from that where then sometimes, you know, um, women, close down and then they you know where men want us to be soft with them um we become 
maybe more in our masculine in that, which is, you know, um, shut down, not soft, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, and then the, the, the balance of like the needs are just not met and the, the balance is off. So again, it's like, it's the vulnerability on both parts. And, and when you can get to that sweet spot where there is like the, the willingness to go deeper, you know, the willingness to stay when it's hard to stay open, to stay in the the moment. And then for the feminine to, to, re- to receive and hold some softness in that space. Um, I mean, it's, it's work on both sides for sure, but I've seen it happen and I've seen how beautiful it can be and how healing it can be. And so I, I think there's so much great work being done in you know, women's work as well as men's work, where I always think of that, that Ram Dass quote, where it's like the most loving thing I can do for you is work on myself. And the most loving thing you can do for me is work on yourself. And so that's why I just value this type of work so much because, um, it benefits our relationships. It benefits everywhere. You know, the, 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 the web that spreads when we continue to, to go to those dark parts of ourselves and to dig deeper and to be vulnerable, um, the healing that happens and and the intimate relationships that we can have subsequently from that, I think is just so rewarding. Yeah. And it, it's, it's this, you know, constant process of just peeling back the layers and peeling, you know, the onion of, of revealing, you know, uh, revealing the most, um, intimate parts of ourselves both first and foremost to ourselves you know to to be in intimacy with another requires that we be intimate with ourselves and um and i know that you know with men there's 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 often an externalized um uh sort of method of of recognizing or ex- at least experiencing love and acceptance in our world right and so the pressure that we can often put on women to be soft to be warm to be loving comes from a place of us not fully loving and accepting ourselves as we are and then there isn't the freedom for the woman you know the feminine to be just as she is and to open up in her own time um and and so this way in which we can for men especially that that we can love ourselves and turn towards our emotional experience instead of turning away which causes so much pain but but just the act of turning towards and i and i think you know when i define love it has a number of you know definitions out there but a simple way that i i love to think about it is is just like simply making space for something like i love myself so much that i'm going to make space for this experience i'm going to make complete space for this experience and um and, and it just pays dividends for how we um how we begin to connect with ourselves and connect with others and connect to the world around us and find the thing that gives us the most meaning and really moves us you know to to take action and to to learn how to be in relationship with you know, this human experience around us. Oh my gosh. So well said. And it's interesting because I, you know, I don't know how much you know about astrology or your own, but I'm a Libra and I have a lot of Libra in my chart. And I know very clearly just from life experience, but also from my natal chart that, you know, my purpose or my path in this life is to 
to understand myself through relationships. And I value relationships so much. And I, um, I learn all my like important life lessons through my relationships. I learn about myself. I learn about who I want to be, who I don't want to be. There's so much that we can grow from in the container of relationships. And it's just a beautiful area to study and to learn and to, and I, I just, I think it's such an amazing subject. I truly feel like your perspective is, is so wise and so beautifully put, and I could talk about it forever. Um, it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about, honestly. So thank you for, for sharing that wisdom and that perspective and just the way you so beautifully put it. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. I, um, I love astrology, by the way, especially lately. I'm, I'm a Pisces, Sun, Virgo, Moon, Leo rising, um, and I have. I was born on a full moon, and I have Jupiter and Saturn um, conjunct or opposing each other. So I have this big amount of tension in my astrological chart that drives me to integrate, which is part of the reason I think why I ended up in the line of work that I ended up in because all of this tension that I felt in my system requires me, you know, to integrate, to be in a place of peace. So, um, very, very much into astrology these days. Well, that makes a lot of sense that Leo rising and the sun being your chart ruler, like that makes a a whole lot of sense knowing, you know, your path and your, what you do in, in your life. Do you know what your North node is? Not off the top of my head. It's always interesting. That's one of my favorite things to know in the natal chart because, you know, it always indicates like our path and our, you know, our our true purpose. And so it's funny on the subject of, you know, we're talking masculine and feminine. My north node is in cancer. So, you know, it's it's the feminine, it's the mother, um, it's the moon, right? And it's, I always tell myself, like, I know I'm in alignment with, with who I'm meant to be and with my true self when I embody the qualities of cancer, which is the most feminine sign. You know, that is my medicine, I guess I would say. It's embracing those qualities and, and becoming more, um, more like that. So it's interesting to know yours. You should check it out and see, but, but I definitely think like, you know, that Pisces and that Virgo and then that Leo, it's a, it's a beautiful balance. It really is. So there's some strong, strong qualities there. It's a solid natal chart. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I just looked it up. I'm a Leo ascendant uh, in the North. That's node. your yeah. rising. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, that's you rising. Say what your North node is. Yeah. Um, I don't have that. Well, you'll have to look and let me know later and I'll tell you about it. It really is like you should learn it, study it because it's it's fascinating. Okay. So I would love for you to just sort of tie in now. Like obviously you're working in Denver, you're doing, you're sitting on this advisory board. Tell me what's going on with policy reform and and, and what kind of moves you're making in that regard there. Yeah. So policy was, this policy work was, Never something I really set out to to get into, but you know, as as fate would have it, I guess, um, you know, the way in which we're sort of called to to step into to life um, in or invited, I guess. Um, I yeah, I just found um, found my way into uh, being a part of the qualifications, licensure, and training subcommittee for. The Natural Medicine Advisory Board here in Colorado. So we're um, tasked with creating the uh, the licensure model um, 
uh, and as well as the uh, core curriculum for the training program, um, which, you know, it's, it's a fascinating, we're bringing two worlds together and they're worlds that, um, you know, are in some ways sort of polar opposites and have never been, you know, combined in, in at least modern history here in the United States, which is sort of this government aspect and the regulatory aspect and also this, you know, deeply spiritual and mystical space. So we're, we're essentially, you know, creating a, a, a program that allows for mystical spiritual experiences to take place um, with licensed facilitators. And, um, and so there's a lot of heads that have been brought together to think about uh, the best path forward for, um, uh, for bringing these medicines into the, the public arena and, um, and, uh, a lot of really very intelligent people are, are a part of this. And, um, and it's, it's just been really beautiful to see the way the state of Colorado has approached it, uh, because there is this deep understanding and, and, and honor and, and reverence for, uh, the capacities that, that these medicines prevent, present in terms of spiritual or, um, uh, you know, spiritual growth or, you know, um, human growth and development. Um, but, but even outside of sort of the Western medical model, incorporating these more sort of earth-based, um, technologies that, that, you know, um, are, are, they're, they're very, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, such a fascinating conversation to be a part of. And, um, right now where, um, we're at, at least with the, the subcommittee that I'm on is a lot of the core curriculum has, has been established and we're deliberating, um, on various different pieces. So essentially thinking that this licensure will include two different components to it. One being educational and sort of classroom and one being experiential or practicum. Um, and just navigating wh what facilitators need to know and understand about um, what it takes to be a facilitator. And, and fortunately, I think where we're, where this subcommittee has gone and in where the maybe mental health model hasn't gone as much um, uh, themselves and sort of a broad definition is is there's a there's a real focus on on putting an emphasis on um, uh, self understanding. You know who I am as a person is inevitably going to impact the quality of the space that I facilitate um, as as a guide, and and same goes for for everybody else. And and I think that's such a a beautiful component that we're we're bringing to the table. And um and then there are five other subcommittees that are working on various different things um from safety and ethics to um uh first response uh and um so big questions being answered a lot of bright minds you know putting their heads together it's it's a it's a big collective effort and the state has been you know really supportive from my perspective so well, we're yeah. so grateful, you know, I'm grateful for states like Colorado that are really leading the way on that, but also, you know, for your time and effort in fighting the good fight there, because we all want to see, 
you know, these changes and and we all support, well, we all, most of us, you know, the, these type of policy reforms, but it takes people like you taking time to sit on these committees and, you know, to do the collective work to really um, try to bring about these changes. So, so thank you for your work in that. It's so needed and appreciated and, and, you know, state like South Carolina, where I am, I just imagine, like, I always kind of joke around and say, we're going to be dead last, but hopefully not, you know, I mean, um, again, states like Colorado are, are really leading the way and doing it in such a, uh, a classy way and, and, and with integrity and intention and, and education behind it. So I'm, I'm excited to see what comes and I'm grateful for your, your time and energy spent in that arena. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it's just such an honor to get to be a part of um be a part of this process especially here in Colorado and I know that you know other states are looking at how Colorado implements this to to see if it's a viable option for uh for their states and and so far the early data on what we have for the at least the decriminalization piece um is that you know, we haven't had a a lot of adverse experiences here. So each day, you know, that, that we're not seeing an uptick in, in um, adverse effects of, of this law being passed is, is really adding to the viability. And, and so I think, you know, we'll, we'll start to see a real domino effect occurring over the next, I, I think, five to 10 years with, with states adopting models um that that maybe mirror what colorado has or even better hopefully um in some ways so we're at we're at the the tip of the iceberg here and there's just so much so much potential for what can be done um within you know sort of healing the individual and healing the collective pain of of society completely agree and i do think you know all the other states are are watching closely and y'all are are leading the way in that regard and and it is going to be you know um the next 5 to 10 years hopefully sooner but but definitely the next 5 to 10 years are going to be fascinating to see how how it all unfolds and where we're going to be with our medical model in terms of you know therapeutic modalities with a lot of these medicines and I'm very excited. So, so obviously that's kind of on a more, you know, collective level on an individual level, you know, tell me where people can find you to work with you. Um, you know, I know obviously you do your men's work and you, you have your center there. Like what, what, how can people, you know, do some one-on-one work with you? Yeah. So you can find me at center of all directions.com. That's my website. Um, my Instagram handle is at James Eshelman. Um, all of my services are, um, maybe not all of my services, but my services are lifted on, listed on my website. Um, I do keep it fairly vague as, as I do love to sort of custom fit uh, my coaching programs to an individual's needs. Um, I work sort of within a, a depth psychology uh, kind of modality that weaves in also um, inner child healing and um, the examination of uh, parental dynamics within our childhood to really um, create an understanding about who we are and where we're meant to live in terms of what gifts we're meant to give to the world. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I do you know men's work um, and a lot of that is done locally here in Colorado in, in group settings, but I also do work uh, one-on-one with men in helping them connect to 
their more vulnerable side and begin to break down all of the conditioning of uh, toxic masculinity and um, uh, in our systems and, and all the conditioned beliefs that we've adopted that, you know, ultimately were meant to keep us safe in life, but now, you know, often keep us removed from the life that we are supposed to live. So um, I do work in one-on-one capacities there. And then, you know, the next year and a half for me is um, really focused on establishing and creating a, a healing center here in the state of Colorado to provide state licensed psilocybin services um, in addition to a supportive integ- uh, holistic integrative uh, community for, um, you know, to, to, to support the, the, the psychedelic wave that's, that's occurring here locally. So, um, that's, that's kind of in the, the long-term horizon. Well, what a beautiful vision you have. And I'll tell you right now, I will come and Emily and Ailish, if you're listening, that's our next trip guys. We're, we're going to Colorado. We got to do this. I, I want to say too, we, we're going to have to do a part two on this sometime because I would love to dive deeper into the, the you know, side of toxic masculinity, toxic femininity. And then you mentioned, you know, the element that you work with about the inner child healing. And I've done so much work on that this year. I'm fascinated by it. So it's unfortunate we didn't have time to get into those today. So we, I would love to have you come back on because I feel like there's so much more we can talk about. And then the astrology stuff too. We'll have to weave all that in. But I just want to tell you, I, I was fascinated by our conversation today. I think it's incredible what you're doing both on a collective level and then individually, you know, with your one-on-one work. And I'm really inspired by your story. I'm always so inspired by people who have the courage to sort of break away from a life that wasn't serving them and really walk in the path um, of their soul's purpose. You know, that's something that truly inspires me. And I love to talk to and be around people that are embodying that. And you truly are. So thank you for your work and for your story and for your commitment and your service. It's truly been a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. And I hope you will come back and we can continue it a second time. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was just a delight to talk to you. And and I'm really looking forward to to part two. We've got some we've got some good threads that we still need to tie together. So um, I'll very much look forward to that part two. Wonderful. Me too, James. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. 